You are listening to an episode of Dope with Lime, a production of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. Each episode of Dope with Lime explores the life, work, and legacy of Lillian E. Smith. Subscribe on iTunes or SoundCloud, and make sure to follow us on Twitter at LES underscore center. Welcome. My name is Matthew Touch, director of the Lillian E. Smith Center at Piedmont University. In June 2022, the Lillian E. Smith Center hosted the Civil Rights Movement in Northeast Georgia, an institute for area P-12 educators. This year, we will host our second annual institute, entitled the Civil Rights Movement and the Nine-Word Problem. The institute will take place June 12th through 17th, 2023 at the Lillian E. Smith Center. Facilitators will include Reverend Dr. Benjamin Boswell, Dr. Carrie Lee Merritt, and Dr. Jennifer Morrison. You can check out all of our podcast episodes with these facilitators when you look through our podcast feed. You can find out more about the program and how to apply at lesp12.com. On today's episode, we are speaking with Sally Stanthop. She was a participant from last year's Institute. She is an educator, humanitarian, and artist with an avid curiosity and vibrant creativity. She has 18 years of teaching experience at various levels from elementary to undergraduate. She has also served in a variety of administrative roles, including academic coach, class dean, and service learning coordinator, and at the Atlanta History Center, designing virtual field trips. She now teaches at Shambly High School, advocates for inclusive schools, and works with the Stone Mountain Action Coalition to free Stone Mountain Park from its lost cause legacy. All right. Thank you for joining me today, Sally. Good to be here. Yeah, so we met a couple of years ago because you've actually done research on Lillian Smith and I think for your undergrad or master's thesis, right? Undergrad, yeah. Yeah, can you kind of tell us a little bit about that before we start talking about the, the professional development program? So I first read um, Lillian Smith's work when I was in a women's history class and um, I learned that she had a summer camp and so I started investigating that. And that made me want to look at how summer camps um, in the first half of the 20th century challenged typical American culture. Um, And what I found was all summer camps in the South, and I focused on Southern summer camps because there wasn't a lot of literature on that, um, challenged gender norms. But only Lillian Smith was the only camp that I could find that really challenged the doctrine of white supremacy. And so that always made her, in my mind, a model to aspire to because she was able to resist um, the culture of her time and offer these young women um, an alternative view of the world. Right. Yeah. That camp was extremely important. And of course, She's doing that while also challenging white supremacy, but also, like you said, challenging gender norms, too, and pushing back, I think, against the patriarchy that, of course, she saw and experienced in her own life. And that kind of leads us, you know, to this professional development program, because we started it last year. It was our first one, and we focused it on the civil rights movement in Northeast Georgia. I mean, that just seemed to be kind of the obvious thing since she's in Northeast Georgia, And it actually took place, of course, at the camp, you know, where she lived and worked. And I wasn't sure if you've been up to the camp before, but can you kind of talk to us about why you decided to 
or what intrigued you about the program and why you decided to apply for it, apart from just studying her before and knowing who she was? Um, well, the idea of living in that space for a few days um, intrigued me. Um, I had visited it before, but I didn't get to spend the night on the premises. So the space itself was very intriguing. Um, and the topic, when I think of civil rights in Georgia, I think of kind of cities like Atlanta, Albany. Okay. We don't think of Habersham and, um, County, and we forget that civil rights do happen, um, across the state. So I was interested in those stories that I hadn't heard. Um, and so the topic, the space, and I'm always for interested in any sort of professional development that brings people together who are like-minded in their goals in education. And I felt like I would meet people who have the same attitude that I have towards education and its potential. So one of the things you mentioned that I think is really important is the fact when we think about the civil rights movement, we think about cities and larger areas. We think, of course, about Birmingham and Montgomery. We think about the Freedom Rides and Freedom Summer, of course, in Mississippi. We think about Atlanta. We think about Albany, like you said. We don't think about these pockets in the in the rural kind of non-urban settings, right? And one of the things actually for this upcoming professional development program is we're actually going to continue looking at Lillian Smith, of course, but we're going to look at Polly Murray, who, of course, was in a kind of a more urban setting in Durham. But we're also going to look at Ernest Gaines from Louisiana and his work. And, of course, Ernest Gaines actually writes about his, as he calls it, little postage stamp of land. Um, in South Louisiana and really how the civil rights movement impacted the rural community that he grew up in and in the rural black community that he grew up in in South Louisiana, how it came into that community, the impact that it had and the time that it took a course actually to reach there and impact it. So I think those types of stories are extremely important, like you said. And you mentioned kind of coming together with people who are like-minded education-wise or finding things that are for professional development. Why is this type of program important for you as an educator in the classroom? Not just bringing together like-minded individuals, but what do you take away from something like this to bring to your own classroom and to your students? So the ideas of um, Dr. Duena Smith were probably most influential for me. She was one of the speakers of the workshop and she talked a lot about the transformative powers of education and turning your classroom into a sanctuary space. And so the work that I took and what's really influenced me from the days I spent um, at the center were creating a space where students feel able to grow um, and I adapted Dr. Smith's norms, her classroom norms, into my own classroom. And then I created a first week, which I called Stanhope World Building, trying to build this world outside of what my students are used to. Um, and I not only took the ideas of Dr. Smith, but I also kind of infused them with ideas that came from different um, people in the workshop. And one great thing about 
staying up on Scream or Mountain is after the workshop ends, your conversations continue. You know, whether you go on a hike with someone um, or you're just sitting and working, your conversations continue. Um, and so I think that's work that I've already started is creating the, my, my classroom into a sanctuary. Of course, it will continue. Um, I've also brought a lot of people I met through the program into my classroom. So Audrey Davenport, who was one of our guest speakers who we went and saw, um, she actually zoomed into my class and spoke to my students about her experience in fourth grade being one of the only black students and how her white teacher kind of dampened her curiosity and made her feel less than and how she reclaims herself over time and how she transformed that moment into a moment of empowerment for her. And I, she was spoke to almost all Latino kids. Um, and I wanted them to see that, like, you might have these negative experiences in our education system, but you always have time to reclaim them. Um, and the last part that I've really taken very seriously is we focused on telling stories in different means. And one of the means that we focused on was comics um, and graphic histories. Yeah, and one of the one of the texts that we looked at last year was John Lewis's run, which chronicles what happened after the March on Washington and after Selma um, in the civil rights movement and his kind of kind of the breaking apart of SNCC a little bit. So yeah, sorry, go ahead. And um, I wasn't able to bring that into my class, unfortunately, but I have brought a lot of um, graphic histories into my world history and world geography class. Um, that, and so that's been a real positive because I do think students really relate to that form of storytelling. Um, and I now have a very extensive list of graphic histories that I want to read. Um, and actually our library buys a lot of them. So my students have read some of them um, and they read some of them in their classes. So that's exciting. Can, too. You, can you tell us some of the ones that you've used? Um, yes, actually one that I'm using right now and um, world geography is Voces Sin Fronteras. Um, and I think I've seen that, but I haven't looked at it. Yeah, it's written by students. And then um, it's about their experience as immigrants in the United States. So I'm using that. And the World History Project um, works with Trevor Getz and an illustrator who I don't know his um, his or her, it's a her, her name, um, to make these one page comics on men and women in world history. And it's available. And so we use those one pagers in my world history class. Um, and I've ordered for next year, um, Trevor Getz's graphic history, um, called Abina and the Important Men, which centers on a young enslaved woman and how she uses the British colonial justice system to claim our freedom in what was colonized Ghana in the 19th century. And so, so we'll do that next year. So you teach history classes. And of course, this institute is open to anybody, history, English, art, even the sciences, because we do some of that too. But can you talk about how you brought, you mentioned Dr. Smith's norms, you mentioned kind of the graphic histories. Can you talk about any of the kind of information, especially when you're talking about the civil rights movement that you may have brought in? Because one thing we didn't cover which we plan to cover in, of course, future um, fresh development programs 
is the impact of the civil rights movement on the farm workers union and of course the the labor movements in the in the west with latino immigrants right yeah um so one aspect that i thought all of our speakers did an excellent job is bringing up suppressed stories about the civil rights movement typically when we tell the story of the civil rights movement it has become this master narrative that's very celebratory um, and really focuses on like it was one grand success and we don't focus on the difficult histories um, that challenge integration as a you know uh, this purely wonderful experience and so a lot of our speakers um, Audrey Davenport for example she challenges integration as just this wonderful experience for the students who were the pioneers and had to go to these predominantly white schools. Um, and one of the pieces of artwork that we really looked at that probably had the greatest impact on me was Jacob Lawrence's Ordeal of Alice. Um, and I think Americans really like the Norman Rockwell depiction of Ruby Bridges because that tells a heroic depiction and right but i think the ordeal of alice reminds us how complex it is and how literally when ruby ruby bridges and these young children and these young men and women in high school they become kind of sacrifices to this larger social goal and i think that was very important um to look at and this is this is of course marie cochran um helped us book through kind of visual art. She's the director of the Afro-Latin Artist Project. And she brought in Jacob Lawrence's Ordeal of Alice and Norman Rockwell's, I forget the name of the title, but they're both related and they're both depictions of Ruby Bridges integrating, you know, the elementary school in New Orleans. And Lawrence's is really more kind of symbolic and kind of more psychological, I would say. And Rockwell's is more kind of realistic in its depiction. Right. And, um, and Marie Cochran, um, I think she was a really important guest. And she might come to my classroom this year. We're trying to work on that. Um, and she is she, very busy right now. <laughs> as yeah, she, she's easy, emailed me a couple of times and she wants to come, but we'll see. Um, but her piece, which you can find on Georgia Stories in the High, also talks about, you know, this difficulty of integration. And clearly we see that today because we're still having difficulty integrating. Even a school like mine that's very integrated, we are segregated by class level. Um, we're segregated in the cafeteria. We're segregated in our sports. So I think it is an important aspect of the civil rights movement. Um, another part of the civil rights movement that I think we got to look at was that people didn't always agree. And we did that with RUN, um, which was one of our texts that we all read. And we also did that with Lillian Smith somewhat. Um, she provided this kind of backbone of support for so many of the young civil rights activists that were active in Atlanta, but she all always didn't agree with um, all of the organizations at that time and had different beliefs. Um, and I think that's always important to look at because if we tell the civil rights movement as like a unified movement, that fought and get, had success after success and overcame racism. People who are activists today 
feel like failures because it's really hard work. You have to put in the time day after day and experience a lot of failure. But if you look um, at all of the stories of the civil rights movement, especially the undertold ones, you realize that it was a series of small successes and then setbacks, small, you know, and often, you know, our greatest superstars of the civil rights movement that have become kind of the matriarchs like Rosa Parks, she had, you know, 20 years of failures before um, she even made national news with the Montgomery bus boycott. Um, I also appreciated that we talked a lot about the Highlander School um, because that's an important piece of the civil rights movement that's often not brought up. So that was another aspect that I really appreciated about this seminar. And one thing you're talking about those narratives. Um, started reading Eddie S. Glau Jr.'s um, Begin Again, James Baldwin's America and its Urgent Lessons for Our Own. And one of the things he talks about is something that King talks about in his last essay, A Testament of Hope is the fact that we tell these narratives to make us feel better for one. So it's it's what the Southern Poverty Law Center calls the nine-word problem, partly, right? It's When we think about the civil rights movement, it's Rosa Parks, Martin Luther King, and I Have a Dream, right? Those nine words. And what Gloud kind of talks about is that, you know, there were these successes, but if you look, that's when the backlash started happening. If you get to like 68 and then you get to Nixon, and King puts it in the Testament of Hope. He basically says just because the Civil Rights or the, or the Voting Rights Act was passed, people think that racism's gone, right, in 64. But it's not. So I think that that's an important thing to kind of remember, too, because that's, of course, that shift that Lewis talks about in Run and that King and Baldwin, everybody talk about happens in the late 60s, right? And actually, this P-12 this summer's this 2023 one is actually going to deal with that a little bit. We will look at a couple of pieces from King. We'll look at a couple of pieces um, and compare those with Lil and then kind of think about those in kind of this context, right? Um, one other aspect that I want to bring up, um, and I didn't know if I can say the other participants' names, but D- just say another participant. Another participant um is how everyone pursued a small project and then they presented it at the end. And there were two that had a huge influence on my development. And I don't think I fully grown in, like I fully encompassed that influence. Um, One was a presentation, a story about shrinking at school and shrinking because of the stories they were told. Um, And it was because they weren't exposed to any stories that helped them relate to themselves specifically like stories of queer people. And that's something that I'm very weak on in my curriculum. And it's not like Georgia standards are helping me here. Okay. So that's really kind of made me very aware of how we have to create a more inclusive um, curriculum um, and made me very aware of how potential legislation can affect students. Um, so I've become more cognizant of that. And then another participant presented her own journey, um, writing a fiction piece, um, or creating this fictional, I'm not sure if it was going to be a story or a podcast, um, and how it led her to start listening 
to different people's experiences and how it like made her realize that she had not been aware of like the multitude of stories there are about race in America. And that struck me because both me and that participant are white women. And I think as white women, we, we want to be empathetic. Um, but that's not enough, right? Because you can't just be empathetic because you don't know what's going on. And you have to put yourselves in these difficult spaces. And sometimes it's hard to be in those difficult spaces because um, you have to realize your own blindness. And that's hard. And so watching someone else do, do that has given me the courage to really put myself in those spaces this year. Um, and I have had, you know, some failures and some successes working in these spaces and promoting kind of more equitable storytelling and a greater inclusion of stories at my school and outside of it, too. Yeah, one of the things you said there is the uncomfortableness that we that you feel sometimes. And it reminds me, of course, of the events and the gatherings that Lillian actually had at the camp with white and black women. Right. And she talks about the fact that people weren't comfortable. They weren't especially she talks about a white woman who, you know, got kind of sick to her stomach. She knew what she was doing was right, but she got sick to her stomach because she wasn't sure how to navigate that space. And of course, once everything was over, she was fine. And she talks about a black woman having kind of some of the same feelings, right? And I think what's key with what you said is what I talked about with um, Megan Butchard a couple of podcasts ago, or the last podcast was actually, you know, taking the space to listen. And I think that's what Lillian did well, even though she she was very vocal and I probably could, you know, command a conversation and butt in, I would say, from what I kind of seen about her, but taking and listening with the journal that she did and elsewhere too, and taking that time. Right. And I think that's really important. So how have you kind of taken that? You've, you've kind of mentioned here and there, how you've taken it into, the, into your classroom. How have you taken that listening into your classroom with your students and what they kind of experience and go through? Well, um, in all my classes um, this year, I'm encouraging my students to use listening as a research tool. So we are doing um, projects in my world geography class right now, my ESOL world geography class. And they, many of my students are using either surveys or um, oral interviews as their primary research. Um, we're doing similar projects in another world geography um, class that, again, students are primarily using oral um, histories. I also teach um, psychology. I found out two weeks before school started this year. Um, so that was kind of, which I'm really glad that I had the seminar because one thing about the AP psychology curriculum is you think social science, there's not room for racism in social science. But it's interesting because we have to know about 50 psychologists by names and surprise, surprise, there's not one black psychologist and there's nine women. So um, it's funny that because I'd come from history, I always thought that was probably the area that we most needed to focus on when we think of inclusive curriculum. But I guess every area has room for growth. Um, but psychology, I think, is a really important um, 
space that allows listening. Um, and so that's one aspect I've really appreciated about my students um, because many, many of the psychological concepts that we speak about, they can see in their lives and testify of the effects of them. Right. Um, and so we get to do a lot of kind of personal illustrative examples. So I, I appreciate that. Um, also this summer I'm doing a project where we're going to do a week of programming for teenagers in the Stone Mountain area. And Stone Mountain is one of the areas that I've worked really hard to change. You can't see any changes there, but I have been working hard. I'm part of a Stone Mountain Action Coalition. And we want to have a more inclusive park that reflects what happened in the past rather than this lost cause narrative. And so we are creating um, a, a summer program where teenagers can come and do oral interviews, archival research, um, to discover kind of the relationship between Stone Mountain Park and Shermantown, the adjacent historically black community. Um, and we will be listening to a lot of oral histories that have already been made, but also hopefully going out there and doing some of our own. So listening has affected all of those aspects. And there's one other really um, event that shows how powerful the seminar made me believe in listening is we're trying to become a more inclusive school. And I'm part of a um, group in my school called Teaching for Black Lives. And we organized an event on February 17th where we had different teachers, Black, White, Asian, Latinx, testify about their experiences with race. And it was a very simple panel. Um, and it was very powerful. People cried. And it was all based on just listening to what people's experience with race was, where they got their ideas about race, how stereotypes had affected them and how they saw the world. Um, and that, that was the first event that we really got approved by our administration. And it went really well. And it was solely based on the power of listening and the power of storytelling. Yeah, thank you for that. Um, that's a lot of stuff that you're doing that has come out of that. I know you've done stuff before, of course, even this program. So we got to start wrapping up. And I can't end, of course, without asking this question. Why would you recommend that someone attend a professional development program like like this? I mean, our plan is to have these annually. So why would you recommend or suggest that someone attend this year? Okay, the space, the space is so unique. You are literally in a historical artifact. The fact that you can walk into the library that was there when Lillian and her campers were there and some of the same books are there, I think that is a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity. Um, so I think that there's no professional development that is available that gives you kind of this historical, if you're spiritual, spiritual experience. Um, North Georgia is beautiful, you know, and if you're from Atlanta or um, sometimes we forget how powerful nature can be um, on our well-being. And I loved how you showed an integrated biology into it. Um, and we did the nature walks. 
I thought that was really powerful. Um, and the other is I, the amount that you'll take away that you can apply to your own life in your classroom is amazing. Um, and it's not, it's not so contained and explicit that there's only one way to interpret it. I still have a reading list, you know, um, and, you know, it encouraged me to read more James Baldwin. It encouraged me to go back and read some of Lillian Smith's work. Um, and so I think that it's something that's going to stay with you. The people will, will stay with you. I still see and contact some of the people. Um, so it's short, but it's very powerful. Yeah. Thank you for that. So is there anything else you would like to add? Sorry, that was amazing. I think that's, um, if you don't have any more questions, I think we're good. Oh, thank you for joining me today. If you are interested in learning more about the civil rights movement and the nine word problem, this year's P12 Institute hosted by the Lillian E. Smith Center, make sure to check out the website at lesp12.com or email us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. This year, we will have facilitators Reverend Benjamin Boswell Dr. Carrie Lee Merritt, and Dr. Jennifer Morrison. We will look at the works of Lillian Smith, the work, some of the works of Polly Murray, some work by Martin Luther King Jr., and some work by Ernest Gaines, as well as incorporate the environmental science aspects that Sally and I spoke about from last year. Again, if you'd like more information, make sure to reach out to us. Applications are open from March 1st through May 1st, and we will let you know of your acceptance by May 15th. Every participant will get a copy, copies of the books that we will use during the, the Professional Development Institute. You will also receive a $200 honorarium, breakfast and lunch, and accommodations at the Lillian E. Smith Center in the bunkhouses. Again, if you'd like to learn more, make sure to check out lesp12.com. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dope with Lime. Did you enjoy this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag Dope with Lime on social media or get in touch with us at lescenter at piedmont.edu. You can learn more about Lillian E. Smith and the center by visiting www.piedmont.edu backslash les.